Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about design writing. Dane Sujik is on the show today, and this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. Dane likely needs no introduction, but just to sample some of the work he's done, he was the director of the Design Museum in London from 2006 to 2020. He was an architecture and design critic for both The Guardian and The Sunday Times. From 2000 to 2004, he was the editor of Domus, and he is the co-founder and editor of Blueprint Magazine, which uh, longtime listeners of the show know I kind of hold up as, as the pinnacle of, of design publishing. For many of us interested in writing about design, I think Dayan is the model. And so this conversation is really an attempt to understand how Dan thinks about all of this work. I was interested in his move through writing to editing to curating, his time at the Design Museum and that overlap between administration and scholarship. And if there was some sort of critical project that guides all of this work. This, of course, leads to all sorts of interesting discussions around how design discourse has changed over the course of his career, the models that he looked to when he was starting out writing about design, and why design itself has held such uh, an interest for him over his long career. It's a great conversation and one that I'm so honored he agreed to do and, and so happy that he was on the show. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, transcripts of every episode, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support Scratching the Surface. So if you like the show, if you want to see it continue, if you want to see more of it in the world, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details to sign up and to help support Scratching the Surface. Thank you, as always, for your support and for listening, and enjoy this really wonderful conversation with Dayan Sujik. so much that you've done in your career. You've worked across journalism and criticism and editing and teaching and curating and, and the design museum and blueprint. There's so much that I want to talk to you about, and, and I'm sure we will talk about all of those things. But to begin the conversation and perhaps to help frame all of this, I'm curious, over the course of, of your career, somebody who's been thinking about architecture and design, uh, for, I guess, like four decades now, 40 years or so. Is there a connection between all of these kind of different roles you've had, being the journalist, being the critic, the editor at the Design Museum? Is there some sort of th common thread through all of that? Or is there a kind of critical project that you think has shaped that or a, a question that has, has guided that? How do you think about how all of these these different roles come together in your career? I think there's really two things that got me started. Um, one was that adolescent anxiety about career paths and how you shape what you're going to do. And so in Britain, you need to choose um, what you study at high school as a prelude to what you study at university. And that pretty much sets you off on, on life. And early on, I had this idea that uh, if I selected architecture, at university, I would then have all those anxious making life decisions sorted out in one go. I would right. study the subject, 
and then all will be well. But of course, below the surface, there was also a sort of uh, ambivalence. My, my father was a journalist, and I'd always mm. had a fascination for uh, asking questions. Um, so I tried to keep my options open as long as possible. So while ostensibly studying architecture at school, I was um, already editing the, the, the college newspaper, and I'd always tried to keep those two things at the same time. But on another level, also autobiographically, um, you know, my parents went to moved from what was then called Yugoslavia to Britain before uh, World War II. I was born in Britain after after the war uh, in the fifties, and grew up slightly culturally dispossessed. In that um, I sounded pretty English, but I had this kind of Middle European name, which was puzzling uh, growing up in London. And uh, I remember one day realizing that, of course, my parents didn't speak English quite like anybody else. And I realized suddenly that I wasn't entirely rooted in the UK. And that's when I started really thinking quite hard about how identity is manufactured. And a lot of that has to do with design and with architecture. And I suppose throughout life, a lot of the things I've been fascinated about is trying to understand the ways that design is used to communicate messages about identity, about belonging, uh, about right. roots and about origins. It's interesting that you say that because that's something that in preparing for this comes up again and again when you are, are being interviewed and even in your writing about design and design objects, whether that is you know a, a product or a building or a poster or a typeface even, is a way for us to... Um, you know, explore the world around us or understand the world around us. And I was trying to figure out where you arrived at that idea. It's an idea that that I agree with, and it's how I think about design also. Um, it seems like it was, that was there from the beginning, you know, from a very young age. It, it's, it's, it comes from a kind of personal experience. I suppose it is asking yourself those questions. I mean, if you're shuttling back and forth between London in the 1960s and Yugoslavia, you did notice, even as a kid, that um, everyday things in life were different. Um, you know, a banknote in London is embellished with um, uh, a aged um, men with unnecessary amounts of facial hair. In Yugoslavia <laughs> at the time, the dinar was decorated with heroic workers and peasants, power stations, yeah. and so on. And that, you know, that's 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 a, an obvious question to ask yourself. But I can't claim to have invented this idea. Um, right. writers have actually been exploring the way that objects reflect culture for a very long time. I mean, Semper in the 18th and 19th century was suggesting that you could actually intuit everything about a culture from the shape of the neck of a water carrying vase. Right. I mean, it's interesting to me because my graphic design education in my undergraduate experience was purely formal. Uh, here's what things look like. Here's the evolution of styles. Uh, you know, we went from from ornamentation to modernism to postmodern. You know, it was just that there was no kind of cultural context around why those things looked the way they did. And so that is a that is a way of understanding design that I came to later and completely turned all of my work upside down and how I think about my work and and what I want my work to be about. I'm I'm curious about that 
we won't spend this whole conversation talking about your childhood and early education, I promise. But I'm curious how that kind of manifested itself for you as somebody who was both studying architecture and wanted to be an architect. Were you thinking about those things as something that you could be shaping or would be shaping? Or did you really start to form that more on the writing side? Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I suppose... Um architecture was interesting because it seemed like a way to make uh, a childhood of um i mean london growing up in the 60s and 70s was not all um about uh, the king's road a lot of it was kind of dull um and uh you know london was still kind of quite um it, it hadn't become what it became before brexit and and, and um the covid had um, so one was looking for things to make it more interesting. And I suppose the idea of architecture was that you could actually transform your world, um, that you could shape it, that you could actually create something. And to me, that was, I suppose, one of the first things about um, d design, that it was about modernity. It was about shaping and shaking life in, 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 into, into your own private world. And that idea of understanding it as a language did, did come later. I, I suppose that my early journalism was a chance to go and look at a lot of buildings. Um, in my first paid-for journalistic career was on a weekly, uh, a, a professional architectural magazine, which came out once a week. And it gave me the chance to go and look at a lot of stuff and try and write about it. And quite quickly, um, you try to find ways which were more than simple description um, as I think actually Charles Jenks once said, too much architectural writing is simply extended captions. And you look for the, <laughs> right, yeah. the substance. Can you talk about that that kind of early architecture writing? I mean, you were the, the architecture critic at the Sunday Times in the early 80s. And I'm curious what the sort of the mandate of an architecture critic in a, in a newspaper like that in the 80s, what was, how did you think about your job? Was that was that going around visiting buildings, like you said, and just kind of talking about them? Or, or was there some sort of kind of, how, how does this shape how we live? Were you thinking about that then? For a mass market newspaper, I and mean, in those days, you know, the Sunday Times was selling a million copies of every Sunday. So you had to fight for space in it. And there was a presumption that this is basically beyond most readers. Um, mm. So you became an evangelist, you had to find a reason to put material in. And there were basically two kinds of story. Um, one was um, disasters, uh, buildings <laughs> collapsing, um, eyesores, okay. the sense that uh, the, the landscape was getting worse and worse. And the other where you were, tr you were trying to find ways to justify the subject. So on the whole, that meant positivity. Yeah. Um, you know, although it's easier to write in a negative sense about a project, um, it, it's more complex to actually show why it's interesting and why it matters. Um, and there was always that, there was a, I mean, an art critic in those days was a recognized task. No one quite understood what architecture might be about. Although I think as in the US, which had Ada Louise Huxtable as a kind of pioneer, um, in Britain, there were a couple of really interesting writers um, a man called Ian Nairn, who um, mm -hmm. wrote for the Sunday Times and the Observer, I followed in his footsteps. And he had actually managed to, he made, he made his writing work by taking a very 
personal, idiosyncratic, conversational tone. And that was very useful. And then also, in those days, one was lucky enough to exist in a time when there were still people called sub-editors, or in America, I suppose you call them copy editors. And I <laughs> was very influenced by a, um, an early encounter with one at the Sunday Times who uh, warned me never to use the word fenestration when window is pretty right. good. And that's really been brilliant right. in the past ever since. Thinking about you know why the word window <laughs> works, how did that early experience shape your understanding of how to talk about architecture, how to talk about buildings, how to talk about design generally when you were writing for an audience who perhaps didn't understand or didn't care, maybe even, that you were fighting for space. How did that shape kind of your understanding of how do we talk about these things that you think are important and are shaping how we live in a way that is both accessible, but also interesting, engaging, um, you know, illuminating, educational, how, how did that early experience shape kind of everything that you've done since? Well, there were models. Um, you know, I mentioned Ian there, and there was also mm-hmm. um, Raina Bannum, who was, right. again, very inspirational, and, and obviously I think in America too, where he ended up teaching. But Bannum actually had this gift of understanding that you could explore almost anything and actually come out with something that was A, amusing, and B, insightful. And that sense that you had a duty to your readers to entertain, engage, and amuse them was always important. And that sort of cut across the idea of architecture as a defended compound um, Mm. in in which uh, there was a fear of outsiders getting to grips with it. So it developed, (laughs) as many areas do, uh, a a private language. uh, Yeah. I mean, fenestration is pretty lightweight by comparison with um, <laughs> what Peter Eisenman was talking about uh, in those days. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you had a responsibility to do that. Of course, that did... Journalism in those days was seen as actually a, a negative word. Um, you know, it mm. wasn't the same as critical writing. Um, and yeah. that also, you know, it, it, it made some architects kind of suspicious of what you were doing. Do you did you see that work as journalism or as criticism, or, and is did you see a difference between them? I, I do see a difference, and I think that um, as time goes by and you have more experience, you have the chance to understand that there is more substance to your work. Initially, I found it quite hard. I mean, I saw myself initially as being at the entertainment end of the spectrum, and mm. I suppose as as one got to see more things and read more, you understood that it, what what was possible was to maintain that sense of a of a lightness of an engagement, but provide more substance as well. And maybe there's a convergence. I mean, maybe this is a way to talk about blueprint a little bit because I'm interested in kind of what you were hoping to do with Blueprint, which you founded while you were still at the Sunday Times, right? That's right, um, in um, my in my apartment, yeah. So what was, in, in Blueprint, and, and I think listeners to this show will be very familiar with Blueprint. I had Rick Pointer on the show. I had Janet Abrams on the show. Um, I kind of hold Blueprint up. It was a little bit before my time um, as kind of the... Um, 
I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but I, Blueprint to me is kind of the pinnacle of, of great design and architecture writing. I, I kind of think of Blueprint and ID as like the golden era of, of design writing for better and for worse. Um, but I'm interested in what you wanted to do with Blueprint that you couldn't do at the Sunday Times or what, how you saw perhaps Blueprint as a reaction or response to this other work that you were doing. Well, first, full disclosure, Blueprint was, in fact, the conception of Peter Murray, the publisher, um, who brought together a, a really interesting group of people. And I think that was one of its strengths, that um, you know, he was collecting interesting and gifted people starting out on their careers, and that was super important. Um, I, I think that all of us had that idea of a kind of mission to explain. I mean, that sounds mm. preaching, and I suppose we were always careful not to be too evangelistic about it and it developed a certain uh, anglo-saxon skeptical tone um, <laughs> but you know again there were precedents um, one was the idea of the format which in fact was um, uh, entirely inspired by um, skyline the new york magazine that yeah. designed um, yeah that's right of course rather a dubious um, inspiration in that it disappeared after five issues um, which was the most, <laughs> most encouraging um, it starts for us. Um, and Blueprint was meant to be irreverent. Um, it was reflecting a new generation of writers. And as in many, in many fields, every generation succeeds by overturning the norms of its predecessors and mm. uh, um, identifying another generation of talents and individuals to write about. And that was very much blueprints pattern um, it was initially meant to be um, a temporary cooperative we raised the money to publish 10 issues and the idea was then we would actually stop um, and of course mm. once you've got your um, your once your baby started to walk it's very hard to, to squash it uh, so they were <laughs> um, encumbered with this new creation which we had to look after I, it's interesting what you say about, you know, kind of each generation is kind of responding to the one before it. And I, I think we can talk about this specifically with Blueprint, but also just kind of design generally or even design discourse generally. And I think what's interesting about Blueprint is um, I, I've heard you talk about this before, that you were really interested in kind of telling the stories behind these things, looking at the people, making people aware, making making a, a kind of general audience aware that people designed these things. These didn't just come out of nowhere. And so you put, you know, faces on the cover of Blueprint. And in, in many ways, I think that could be a kind of precursor to the architect, to the celebrity designer, which now there's kind of this reaction to that. I, absolutely. I feel mortifi mortified and embarrassed about the whole thing, when I hear the very word architect, I reach for my revolver. It's the most ugly formulation imaginable. Um, yeah. No. And and of course, I can understand the criticism that that there was a sense that um, we were creating geniuses um, and we were completely um, oversimplifying what architecture and design was. And absolutely, and after ten issues, we changed that policy, although not before. I mean, of course, there was a phenomenon known as the curse of blueprint. Every time we photographed a partnership, the partnership would come to a right. rapid end shortly afterwards. I remember one particular partnership which we photographed, and after the session, I was called by one of the partners who called me to say, um, Dan, I'm extremely anxious about this. I'm really worried about this. It doesn't reflect the nature of our partnership because I'm photographed standing up while my partner is sitting there. <laughs> 
I love that. Uh, I mean, I don't. I did not bring that up to embarrass you or to make you kind of defend putting putting faces on the cover because I think putting it in that context that you're talking about, you know, it makes sense. This is this is before I I completely agree with you about the Stark attack. Um, but it's interesting to think about this kind of pre that era and that there was this explaining or you know kind of educational mandate to it and i you know maybe you can talk about this in your work specifically or even just how you think about the design world or design writing or or the design discourse that can can you kind of talk about that evolution from you know putting people on the cover to the, the rise of the architect to the reaction to that and how you think about that. Cause I think that actually connects not to jump around too much, but connects to a lot of the design museum and your work at the design museum, which, you know, obviously there were solo shows, but there were a lot more kind of, um, you know, critical shows also, I think that were, that were less focused on individuals. Can you talk about that evolution and how you see that evolution over the last, I guess, you know, 20 or 30 years? Well, going back even further, I, I reread quite recently, um, a piece that Henry Russell Hitchcock, um, he of the International Style Exhibition, wrote mm-hmm. in a British magazine, Architectural Review in 1947, uh, in which he said that in future, style will be less important than the division of architecture between what he called the architecture of bureaucracy and the architecture of genius. And he quickly mm. checked himself to say that he wasn't suggesting that geniuses produce masterpieces, but he was talking about, uh, when he compared Albert Kahn with Frank Lloyd Wright and mm. firms of several hundred people in which authorship is not part of the issue right. and architecture is a form of self-expression. And I suppose that tension and uh, and uh, contradiction has always been there as a, as a, as a, as a pattern. And I, yeah. I guess um, we were saying earlier how generations assert themselves by turning their backs on their predecessors. And I think that that's always there. So we are at the moment in a period in which um, the cult of the genius is somewhat frowned upon. If you think about what architectural practices are called, um, the name of the principle has vanished a bit. Um, although, you know, on, on that note, though, of course, I suppose it's not entirely accurate. I mean, Rem Kohlhaas uh, and Ilya Zengelis started right. a firm in, in the 80s, which they called uh, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, actually, yeah. the 70s, uh, which could be seen as a critique of the whole idea of the architecture of genius. And yet it right. turned out to be a kind of production line for producing um, geniuses who were invariably male yeah. and always published large, fat books. Yeah. I, I have a question that, that may or may not be related because I think, I mean, in, in your career, you started very kind of focused on architecture and have since expanded out to, to product design, industrial design, fashion, really, you know, across the kind of design spectrum. And, and we, can see that we can see this idea that we're talking about of the kind of celebrity designer across all of those, um, you know, especially in fashion, perhaps. But can you talk a little bit about um, your move, not away from architecture, but beyond architecture or around architecture and was that a was that a kind of natural progression for you to 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 move into writing and thinking about the other design fields it's been a privilege to shift focus as as time has gone by so i still find architecture fascinating and absorbing 
but it's also interesting to understand um, things from other perspectives. So when you start out, you might write about an art museum entirely from the point of view of the architect who will invariably complain about the director and the artist uh, for not using the building in the manner to which it was designed. And then, of course, as time goes by, you realize that there are other views about this and you get a more rounded, I think a more interesting view of what's going on by being able to understand things from different directions. So you, since 2006, and then you stepped down at the end of 2019 at the Design Museum? Or was that the beginning of 2020? Beginning of 2020. At, at the beginning of 2020, mm-hmm. um, where you ran the Design Museum, famously shepherded the, the new building. And I, I have not been to the Design Museum, unfortunately, but I've been a fan from afar. Justin McGurk was on the show um, a couple years ago. And what's interesting to me, especially after kind of hearing what you were just saying, is I'm, I'm curious how you think about this sort of blurry definition of design now that, that in, in many ways these fields of product design or web design or graphic design or, or fashion design, all of these are starting to blur together. Even architecture we can throw in there. Um, and, and they're just kind of becoming design. And running a museum called the Design Museum, how did you think about that? What was the, the sort of mandate of what a design museum in the 21st century should be? Um, or could be even, not even should be? I think there's an encyclopedia of questions in that. It, yes. Uh, <laughs> I might begin by saying that I don't think that design is a thing. I think design is actually a method. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, often people talk about design as if design is that, design does this, design does the other. You, you might as well say that mathematics does this or that. And, and I think design, as I say, is, is a method. But running a design museum, um, well, first of all, you say that each of the constituents are blurring, and yet I think it's still extraordinarily tribal. I can remember mm. um, when we would do a, uh, a show about... Uh, a graphic designer. I mean, the first one we did, and my tenure was about on on pentagram on on Alan on Alan Fletcher, the, Alan, Alan Fletcher, um, and of course you get a very particular audience for mm-hmm. a graphic designer. There's right. fierce tribal loyalty among the world of graphic designers, and <laughs> they will true. walk straight past an architecture show. They will walk straight past a fashion show, mostly, and you had to find ways to overcome that tribalism and find ways in which you might engage people in different ways. But that was when we were in Shad Thames, our our 10,000 square foot former warehouse in by the the river. And when we moved into our new, much larger space in a 1960s landmark transformed by John Pawson, we were consciously trying to move, well, what we were trying to do was to bring the tribes with us, but also bring the real world in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the museum depends on, uh, for its size and scale, you know, at least three quarters of a million visitors a year, which means that you need to offer a, a, a wide range of things. So that was why we planned the place to have multiple galleries of various sizes, which offer a permanent installation, but also a number of different 
temporary display spaces and with no public subsidy and without a massive endowment our for, right. our main income was is selling tickets and that means you need to find projects which will actually engage more than the world that is fascinated by Helvetica or Dieter Rams. Right, and, right. And it took us a while to find that, but it it, it came. Um, you know, we did a show about uh, Stanley Kubrick. We did a show on yep. um, Ferrari. Uh, we were working on a show about Prada, which sadly didn't make it owing to the, the, the mm. pandemic. And there, the key was to actually understand that these are topics which could be dealt with in different ways by different kinds of institutions, but to be credible and to be uh, to be to be plausible and to work, we needed to find a way of approaching these subjects, which were specific to the design museum. That there will be a design oh. museum of addressing these things, which had a lot to do with exploring processes about how things work beneath the surface. So. The fashion designer's view of their own work is about glossy perfection and to do a show with a fashion in the fashion world we would need to work with someone with the courage to allow us to show how the magic is created on the kubrick show we were really fortunate in that his archive is extraordinarily extensive and that he was fascinated in so many of the things that designers are fascinated by um, stationary typography torturing Saul Bass um, <laughs> and to yeah. have all that was it was a fantastic chance to actually show how in the analog era a film was made from start to finish and I suppose that was the kind of the voice that made us not a museum of cinema or a museum of decorative arts but the design museum. That's interesting and that that connects to what two of my, my next questions were going to be but to continue on this thread especially um, in regards to Kubrick which um, by sheer coincidence, um, I had been re-watching all of his films in order, unrelated to thinking that I would be talking to you. And, and then all of a sudden, when the research for this started, there's this nice intersection there. And I, I've always thought of Kubrick as a, as a, a sort of kind of design approach to his, his films. And I think that's a great example. I think um, there was an a exhibition on electronic music and so you're not saying necessarily that these are design, and this goes back to what you're saying about design being an approach, not an object, but that there is a design approach in the creation of these things. Uh, and so it's not saying Stanley Kubrick is a designer, but there is, there is design in Kubrick's work, right? Does that make sense? I think he was fascinated by design of all kinds from... Uh, you know, he worked. He actually asked Elliot Noyes at IBM to visualize what a computer might look like. Um, he absolutely hated yeah. what Noyes came up with. It was a gigantic object in which eight people could sit, and what and what Kubrick wanted was the I, I, iPad. He <laughs> ended up in the film. Um, yeah, he wanted uh, great pieces of contemporary design. So it's Saren and chairs in in the film. What was so interesting and so extraordinary about Kubrick was that. He had a, a way of creating very convincing, very complete worlds about, mm -hmm. he made the near future look plausible by choosing things from our contemporary world in it. And I think that his sensibility in a way mirrors what architecture and design does. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but also pushed it. If you actually think about the way that um, so much of the design world is fascinated by Kubrick um, and the way that he created spaces. So I think in, in, in a way he's reflecting, but guiding as well. To go back to this question around the, the object and that the design is not an object, which again, I, I agree with you here, but I'm curious about how that, how that manifests itself in a museum context when you, and, and, and I, I have limited experience in curation. I've talked to a bunch of curators recently about this. This is something I'm fascinated by. I know how to make an argument through, you know, writing an essay or a critique or to, to talk about design through through essay or through writing, um, I'm less confident that I would be able to do that in a curatorial setting or in a in a museum setting or in a three-dimensional setting where the object does become central to it. And I'm I'm curious about your own move from, from writing and editing into curation and having to work with objects or commission objects or commission design and how this idea of design as an approach then um, how you show that in a in an exhibition context to show that you're not just showing the object, but you're showing this story, this process, everything around it. How do you think about that uh, that transition? Well, that's what makes curating potentially so powerful because you're telling a story with some words, with some images, with some objects, and also with spaces mm. and a sequence of spaces and the power of placement. And to me, that's the closest to what it was like when I was still thinking about being an architect, that you could help to sculpt those spaces, that you could very powerfully juxtapose objects with each other to try and create a visceral impact on on the audience. Now, I think there's different approaches to to curating. Uh, I think America has a rather different take on it from Europe. I get a sense that some of America's museums see an over-designed exhibition as somehow vulgar, mm. that, that put things mm. on walls, don't bring in a fancy designer or a fancy graphic designer, let things speak for <laughs> themselves, which is certainly one approach. But I've also, I mean, but certain kinds of exhibitions, and I certainly, I mean, I certainly don't think that you want to mess around with art in terms of creating over. Right over foregrounded exhibition design, but with designed objects or with architecture, um, sometimes these things need all the help they can get to create that sense of an impact. So for me, um, you know, as, as I've said, creating an exhibition is a chance to create spaces that tell stories. This is a very peculiar question that I'm not sure is a question that maybe you've ever been asked before, but What's interesting to me about your time at the Design Museum is that you were you were the director of that. You shepherded that new building, kind of worked to make that happen. But you also never stopped curating and writing. Also, you, you, you seem to have maintained both a a kind of intellectual or, or scholarship practice through that experience and through that through your tenure there. And I'm interested in in the balance or the overlap of those two things, the kind of administrative side of that job with the scholarship side. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to continue doing both and how those uh, kind of overlapped with each other? Partly there's a question of time scale. So initially writing and journalism seemed a delightful liberation from the timescale of making a building. 
you know, it's three to five years to make a building. Um, for a daily newspaper, uh, you know, it, it can be less than 24 hours. And, and in the digital world, of course, it's, it's instant. So moving from that world into museum direction was initially um, the shock of walking in treacle very, very slowly <laughs> and hardly anything seems to happen. So that sense of being able to write gave you a, a different perspective and it's a privilege to be able to have both at the same time. I was very fortunate yeah. with my colleagues at the museum. I had um, a co-director, Elise Black, who mm-hmm. uh, was a wonderful partner in that process that she gave me the space to have the time to write and think, which could then feed back into the way that we approach programs mm-hmm. at the museum. And that's especially true in that um, we were going through a, pre- a, a prolonged period of identifying a site, fundraising and building it, which of course always takes longer than you expect it will. And during that period, we needed to think quite hard about what we were going to do with all this space. And again, that's right. you know, that doesn't happen simply by um, the bureaucratic essentials of museum keeping. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also great always in life to to do to look at things from multiple perspectives. So when I was editing um, Blueprint and then later editing Domus in Milan, I was editing, right. but I was also writing. I was commissioning, but I was also writing for you know, the newspaper and London Observer. And seeing things from both sides also w- was great. And editing other people's work um, gives you an insight into your own writing, um, but also in, in, is in itself a, a misunderstood pleasure I think there's not, it's a skill which is atrophying. And I think that, you know, an editor's responsibility yeah. is bring the best out of a writer. And that doesn't often yeah. happen. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about editing in a second um, to begin to wrap up. But it, it is true now that you say that, that kind of your entire career, you've been, you've been approaching these questions through multiple positions at the same time, whether that is writing and editing or... Uh, you know, kind of curating and and directing, and or or even like you know when you were in, in kind of academia and you, and you were the dean, there were all these kind of different angles. Do you do, do you feel a need to have these different perspectives happening at the same time in, in your kind of own process? I've never intellectually sat down and said to myself, "I must do all these things," but um, I think that you're always open to opportunities, and I've got a way of saying yes rather than no to things. I, I get that. I can see that in, in, your, in your career. Speaking of editing, I read in an interview that you said Simon Esterson, who, who of course was at Blueprint, and I, I think you brought him to Domus also, and graphic designers will know him as, as art director at I, that he was the one who taught you how to be an editor. How, how did he do that? By it, um, Simon was, you know, there's many, I've been very fortunate with my colleagues over the years, and Simon was particularly important. Um, you know, he's, he's a graphic designer who I've always had the greatest respect for. Uh, he has an ability to understand um, a story from every perspective, from how it would look on the page, to the pictures, to the sequence of how those pictures are, are used, to its place in the magazine overall, and that shape and that form. I mean, of course, these are, these, these are, these are again, um, the building blocks of magazine publishing, which somehow refuse to die. The magazine is still mm-hmm. alive and kicking. That smell of ink on paper 
is still something which new generations keep on finding. Um, I do remember Rick Pointer once um, uh, sharply observing that no magazine you really want to read will ever sell more than 10,000 copies, which is right. something to do with the, the, the tragedy. And yet, uh, you know, that, that, yeah. but, but, but again, as a means of communication, um, the magazine is not the primary form. The, 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 the grammar and the language of magazine design has, has little relevance to a website or to communication through Twitter or TikTok. There's a whole different language and vocabulary and grammar. And I suppose that what we magazine enthusiasts are doing is keeping alive that language and teaching another generation Latin. Right, right. That leads so perfectly into my next question, which is I have two more questions to wrap up. I'm I'm kind of curious both what you're thinking about now, what are the subjects that are exciting to you right now, and then just generally what's next for you? I mean, you have worked across newspapers, magazines, museums. You just um, stepped down from, from the directorship. You're director emeritus now. Um, it, it seems like you can kind of do do what you want. Where where are you focusing your attention right now? I spent a lot of the lockdown in London completing a biography of um, Stalin's architect, a man called Boris Yeltsin, oh, right. who uh, built the um, the 1939 World's Fair Soviet Pavilion in New York, um, astonishingly a hymn to Stalin uh, in the midst of Queens, uh, and I guess. Uh, that was a chance to explore the kind of moral compromises that architects must take. But I, I suppose I have been reflecting more and more on um, in this year in which what we thought was going to become, uh, which, which, which we never thought was going to last as long as it has, um, looking back at previous moments when um, health has challenged the way that we live, uh, and if you think about how Hausmann rebuilt Paris, that was based not on aesthetics, but on uh, cholera, which was killing right. thousands every every summer. If you think about the start of the 20th century, there was a tuberculosis epidemic, which um, meant the construction of a whole uh, raft of uh, sanatoria around the world. It led to um, school children being educated in the outdoors. Um, with kind of minimal uh, environmental um, modification, mm-hmm. um, straw hats in summer and fur coats in winter. Um, mosquitoes and malaria was still endemic throughout Italy at that time. And, and, and in some ways, I think we've been pushed back to that moment. Um, it's had a devastating impact on cities, the things that we, the ideal of that dense city center life that for the last right. 25, 30 years, people have aspired to, has suddenly been wiped off the agenda. London has lost 700,000 people in the last year, partly because of Brexit, but partly because of um, the the pandemic. And I guess New York's actually had a similar uh, Mm -hmm. exodus of people. And and I find that deeply disturbing. So many of the things that are important about life to me are about the idea of the city, its vibrancy, um, its sense of tolerance, and I think it's, you know, the whole design, architecture, planning, urban art worlds need to think very hard about how we might show that the city still has a huge amount to offer. Yeah, 
Yeah, I agree with that. I love that. My last question, and this is the question that I use to end all of these conversations. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Uh, I'm reading a book um, written by uh, the director of the Gulbenkian Museum in Lisbon. She's a British curator called Penelope Curtis. And she has written, she wrote a book uh, actually 15 years ago, which um, I'm now rereading. Uh, it's called um, The Patio and the Pavilion. And it's a meditation on the confrontations between art and architecture. Oh, I've heard of this book. I've never read this. Um, but I, somebody else recommended this to me once, I think. I, sh- I need to read that now. It's six case studies. But there's another book which you might also want to read, which is actually Victoria Newhouse's book called The Power of Placement. Oh, yes. I haven't read that, but I, that's on my li- that's been on my list for a while. Take a look. Actually, she's written two interesting books. I mean, uh, Newhouse's previous book was a biography of um, Har- Wallace Harrison, uh, which is amazing. Oh, right. She uh, documents right. the whole fiasco over the United Nations building in which Harrison held the ring to try and keep Le Corbusier from walking out, not to stop him from walking out. Great stuff. Right, right. I mean, speaking of, speaking of books, um, I'm, I'm very looking forward to uh, Stalin's Architect. Does that come out this year, 2021? No, I'm doing the footnotes now. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be a beginning of next year. Okay, okay. I heard I, in preparing for this, I heard you talk about it uh, or read you talk talk about it in, in another interview or just kind of mention that he, he was somebody that you were interested in. And it yeah. sounds great. I can't wait. Can't wait to read that. Thanks. Dan, thank you so much. Like I said at the beginning, your work has had a, a really profound in, influence on my work and thinking around design and, and design writing specifically. And so this was just a complete honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. This episode was recorded on March 10th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon. You find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.